This is a word fitly spoken. By words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scriptures, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We hear it a word fitly spoken, aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always, from the fullness the Lord has given us in his holy word. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi today to talk about the First Council of Nicaea. Zell and how you doing? Doing well. I've been trying to get a lot of stuff done lately, and the weather's been a little nicer. We've had some nasty storms blow through, but everything's going well, and looking forward to talking about this this topic. Yeah, I know you've been excited about it, delving into our first, or one of our first real significant historical podcasts. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we've been trying to do is to delve a little bit more into church history, but we haven't done it at any great depth yet. I mean, I suppose the the biblical stuff, but that's not quite the same thing. So I'm with this episode we're hoping to to kick off into this area of our show description, really. <laughs> yeah, so so we're going to be talking about an ecumenical council. But just before we get into that specifically, just in general, what is a church council? The church councils, especially in the early part of church history, were special meetings, if you want to, to use a simpler term, of bishops from around the, the Christian world who came together to discuss some problem that was plaguing the Christian church. The first example we get of a church council is actually in the scriptures. Yes, the, the Council of Jerusalem. What is that, Acts 15? 15, somewhere in there, where they're trying to decide whether the, the Gentiles should be forced to observe the Jewish regulations, all of the the dietary laws and all of that sort of thing. And they eventually come to the decision that, no, they don't have to do that, and, and then you move forward. Yeah, there's a few restrictions, and then the rest is history. It's interesting that the Bible does record this meaning and the result of it, and that sets the template for future councils. Yeah, and you have a lot of more local-type councils that happen all throughout church history, and there's also church councils other than Jerusalem that happened before Nicaea, because Nicaea happens in 325 AD. But Nicaea is different because it's the first of what we call the ecumenical councils. Right. Now, people are going to hear the word ecumenism or ecumenical, and today that word sometimes has a negative connotation or or a positive connotation, depending upon your persuasion. But the word means something a little bit different today. Today, we tend to think of different denominations getting together to worship or do some sort of act together. And that's not really what we're talking about here. In this context, what is ecumenical? Ecumenical basically means universal. The idea that in a positive sense, we're dealing with the whole church. There were representatives from many different countries represented at Nicaea. So it has a I guess you could say a significance for more than just one particular branch of the church. This is a council that everyone in church history down to today has to either react to in order to reject it, and there are some groups that do, or they accept it as being a decision of the church. I mean, how else would you put it, Willie? No, it's true, and it's not something that you can gloss over. It's a very significant event in church history. Too often, Protestants will, or some Protestants will want to say 
or evangelicals want to say, well, there's like AD 33, okay, and maybe you get through the age of the apostles, and then there's the Reformation, and then there's like the 1970s. <laughs> and that's kind of a, a sort of a reductionistic view of history that we have. The ripple effect of the First Council of Nicaea is felt today. And in our churches, we regularly confess a product of this council, which would be the Nicene Creed. Although I should point out that it's sort of a product. Yes, of this yes, council. yes. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> but but uh, the doctrines set forth in the council are certainly something that we're going to accept. Absolutely. You know, yeah. So so we don't want to. You know. So we'll, we'll we'll say this. We'll put it this way. Nicene theology. Would that be a a safer way of that's, putting it? That's, yeah. That's perfectly fair. And all I mean by that is that what we know as the Nicene Creed is not yet actually found its final form yet. Right. It's still it's still in development. And we will see that final form later in church history. But it starts here. So that's that's definitely something we can say. Sure. Now, why are we starting with this one? Simply, it is the first of the ecumenical councils. In many ways, it is the most significant, although that title could also go to Chalcedon. You know, not 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 to be ranking them or anything, but it's it's very interesting because just like the Reformation, not everything about church history is theological. There are often political things going on in the background or even in at the forefront of a lot of church history, for good or ill. Just because there are political things going on doesn't make them nefarious necessarily. But we have to understand the historical context both in the ecclesial sense and in the political sense, to rightly understand the Council of Nicaea. Now, some of the things we're going to be talking about, you know, are going to be new to a lot of you, and that's fine. There's going to be a lot of names and dates and things thrown out there. But we are talking about Nicaea for a number of reasons, and one of them is because the Council in recent pop culture has been slandered a bit, or at least misrepresented. So when we come to these popular misconceptions about what occurred at the council, we'll correct those, and we'll show you some of the sources of this of this false teaching here, or this false history, we'll say. Then we're also going to look at some of the false doctrines that the council is fighting against. You're going to see the triumph of orthodoxy here, of right teaching and right thinking, over and against some pretty great odds really. And then you're going to see that despite the triumph of the truth of the scriptures here, that we still deal with these same heresies today. So that we're, we're fighting some of the same battles that the men at the council are fighting, depending on where we're from. So it's extremely valuable for us. But we have to take the slow road, the patient road, and get the context right, get the history right, so that we can discuss the meat of the council. And plus, history is just fun. <laughs> well, I sure enjoy it. <laughs> so, Zelwyn, why don't you take it from here? Yes. There's really a couple of different ways that we have to approach this topic. And one of them is dealing from the, the political background of the Council of Nicaea. And the other one is the religious ba- background of the Council of Nicaea. And I think it's important that we talk about the political one first, if only because that will help clarify why certain figures act the way that they do. I mean, we're going to talk about the doctrines, like you said, but we have to we have to get there first in history. Right. And I don't think you could have a discussion of the Council of Nicaea without saying something about, well, frankly, the Emperor Constantine. Constantine the Great was the first 
Roman emperor who became a Christian. And we'll we'll back up and talk a little bit more about some of the, the basic background here, but I'm just kind of setting it out here. And really because he is the one who gets everything in motion, I think. And this is where we have one of our first little misconceptions, this idea that Constantine is somehow a villain who pushed the Council of Nicaea in order to do his will. Right. And that's not really that's not really the case. Do you want to do you want to build on that, Willie? Well, yeah, it's just that there's going to be this theory that basically comes out of the Enlightenment. Um, a lot of things, you know, these revisionist views of history come out of the Enlightenment, which try to paint the background of the council in a negative light. So basically, mm-hmm. they're going to say that Constantine had a certain view of Christianity that he wanted the church to adopt. So he uses his power and his intrigue to manipulate the council into doing what he wants. Mm-hmm. They're they're going to say that he um, forces the bishops to accept Trinitarian Christianity against Arianism. They're Mm -hmm. bizarrely going to say that he influences the books that are in the Bible, even though that's not part of the discussion of Nicaea. Mm -hmm. You know, there's that other conspiracy theory we deal with that comes originally from Voltaire that says, you know, the bishops just got put their heads together and started banning books from the Bible at Nicaea, which there's absolutely no evidence of and that kind of thing. So that's what we're dealing with, this very popular misconception about the council. And it Mm -hmm. comes from, like I said, the Enlightenment, but then it becomes more popular when, like, Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. published, or even earlier in the 80s, something like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, these fictional things that people have taken as gospel when they're not meant to Mm be. And they... Both of those books, I know Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code for sure, but I believe Holy Blood, Holy Grail as well, which is a different author. I believe they also use this corrupted understanding of the Council of Nicaea to form some of their plot points and some of their background. Yeah. And the problem is, I mean, it sounds weird. And I know that that book's already, I mean, Da Vinci Code's already, it's got to be near 20 years old now, 15 at least. But nevertheless, it did sell millions of copies. And Mm -hmm. it really pricked the public conscience about these things and a lot of christians were were led astray by that and so you have a a whole generation of of people out there who who think the council was some kind of wicked plot or they 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 think the knights templar were some kind of masonic satanists or something too because of it i mean there's just this i mean christian history is really trampled underfoot by pop culture at times yeah and so So that's why we're here, you know, doing this. So sorry. So but back to, no, back no, no. to Constantine. No, that's helpful <laughs> because I think it, it sets out part of the reason, why, like you said, why we're doing this to, to clarify things. And so that we know what it is that actually happened, at least according to the sources that we have. Right. Anyway, the reason I want to talk about Constantine is because it is the situation that he is facing within the Roman Empire that really drives him to get the bishops together. And he he doesn't actually, you know, run the meeting. He just kind of facilitates everything. You know, he doesn't actually vote during the council. He he does talk, but he just kind of gets things moving. But the, the situation that he's facing and the reason why he's so interested in this question is because he's dealing with an empire that has been struggling with all kinds of problems for over pretty much a hundred years by the time Constantine and the Council of Nicaea comes along. Because the earliest, the beginning of this problem is what's typically called the crisis of the third century. 
in Roman history. While there's a lot we could talk about with that, I just just to kind of sum it up in maybe a minute or two, the Emperor Severus Alexander was murdered in the year 235. And after his murder, for the next 50 years or so, there was basically civil war. Okay. And during this civil war, the army, the legions, were continuously raising up emperors, and then they would assassinate them and raise up somebody else. So between 235 and 284, you have no less than 22 Roman emperors, some of whom reign for basically months, then they're murdered. And so into this mess, you now have the emperor, and this is, this is not Constantine, but the emperor Diocletian. Diocletian in the year 284 finally gets things more or less back under control, okay? And when he gets things finally back into control, he decides that we need, well, he decides a couple of things. First of all, we need to run things better. And so he decides that, that he needed to divide the empire into two. People might remember that the, the Roman Empire was divided into the West and to the East. Diocletian is the one who first does that, okay? And he also sets up a, a few other emperors to rule along with him, figuring that more local government would be able to avoid some of these problems. Is that clear, Willie? Do you want to add anything to that? No, or no, I, keep no I think it's good stuff. Keep going. Okay. Um, so Diocletian also decided that the culprits or one of the culprits of this Roman instability was Christianity. And he institutes one of the largest of all of the, the, the persecutions in Roman history, because he figures, well, this, because this is the way that Roman religion thinks or thought, I should say, they thought as long as the gods were happy, then the gods would take care of the empire and they wouldn't have problems. So as long as things were going well, that meant the gods were happy and the Roman state was thriving. So the fact that they'd just gone through all of these problems, some, the gods obviously weren't happy, and the most obvious scapegoat would be Christianity. And so he institutes this empire-wide persecution in an effort to purge out the Christians, and finally bring some stability to the Roman state. Do you want to add anything to the, that persecution? No, I mean, just that it is significant. And we cannot stress that point enough, the severity of that persecution. It was one of the worst in Roman history, right. if not the worst. Right. So finally, into this mess, <laughs> after Diocletian dies, the empire now divided like on a, at a political level, at an official level, again is still struggling. They're still fighting with each other. Diocletian could hold it together while he was still alive, but he wasn't. But after he dies, it just descends back into anarchy. Into this mess comes Constantine, uh, born February 27th, roughly 272. We won't go through all of his life, but he basically ends up being proclaimed Caesar, and I, I can't go into all that detail, by his troops in Great Britain. And he decides that enough is enough. We have to reunite the empire. And so he goes, he engages in a civil war with the aim 
of finally bringing the two halves back together again. Right. Now, there's a significant thing that's going to happen, and I don't want to get to it in this segment because I know it's going to cause a lot of discussion. So mm-hmm. so before we get to that um, significantly here. So now we have this set, this principle of unity. It's going to kind of mark this. Okay, This is a battle to unify the kingdoms again. And that's going to really set the stage, and that's the mindset we kind of have to have going into our understanding of the council. Now, where we're at right now, though, is basically pagans fighting pagans. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's it's been a war against pagans this entire time. I mean, from the Roman standpoint, Romans fighting mm-hmm. Romans, pagans mm-hmm. versus pagans. But all of that mm-hmm. is going to change very soon, and we'll find out right after the break here on Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi talking about the First Council of Nicaea, specifically the historical events leading up to it. When we broke, we were talking about Constantine the Great fighting a battle to unite the empire. And so we come to his most significant battle, the battle at the Milvian Bridge. Zellwin, why don't you give us a rundown of what, what occurred there? Obviously, we're going to be dealing with the the most famous of the things that are claimed at that battle. But before we get to that point, uh, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge was a battle just north of Rome, where he engaged rival Emperor Maxentius in his uh, bid to take over the western part of the empire. And ultimately, he's successful. He does win this battle. But before he engages in the battle, we have a, well... Is it a legendary or is it real event that happens? Willie, what is that event? So just before the battle, Constantine has a dream. And this is, this is according to uh, Christian historians after Constantine. He's visiting a dream the night before the battle, and he's advised to mark the heavenly sign of God on the shields of his soldiers. And it's basically putting the Cairo symbol, the symbol of Jesus Christ, upon their shields. And then he, he places it also upon his, what would you call it? The banner, the war banner. Oh yeah. The standard. Yeah. The vexillium or something like that. Right. Yep. So yep. He puts it upon his standard. And essentially what happens is in doing this, he's given the vision that tells him uh, with this sign, the sign of Christ, you will conquer. You will win the day. Mm-hmm. That was my kind of choppy version of it, but Cliff Notes version receives a dream to put the name of Jesus Christ or the initials of Jesus Christ upon his army. And if he does so in the sign of Christ, his army will win. Which they did. Right. And then he has a dream the following night in which Christ appeared with the same heavenly sign. And that's when he tells him to make the to make the banner. That's the next night, I believe. Okay. So that isn't but but the point is what everybody remembers is this dream that tells him if you 
battle under this sign, you will win. So my question to you then, Zellin, is, is this true? Did it happen? And that's that's a hard question because many of the, as you mentioned, the historians who talk about this particular vision obviously have an interest in giving it. You know, they're, they're Christian historians. It is true that Constantine at least converts to Christianity. How, how strongly he does at this point is a matter of debate, but it is true that he attributes this particular battle's outcome to the Trinity, to the Christian God. Now, I mean, it's interesting because you do have coinage in his lifetime showing him with the symbol on his helmet. Yes. He also adopts many things very quickly after this particular battle that are very favorable to Christianity. The reason why it's questionable, or at least you can debate, you know, how strong his conversion was at this point, was because he continues to do some things that are more fitting for a pagan emperor, like calling himself Pontifex Maximus, or not being very explicit, at least in the beginning, about, you know, who it is that he actually worships. So, the, the depth of, of Constantine's conversion is, is a matter of debate. I think it's genuine. I think he does become a Christian, but I do also think that he has some growing to do. He's not becoming a, a ultra-Orthodox kind of Christian overnight, uh, whether he saw this vision or not. I, I think that he is basically start, he's starting down the path that will include, eventually, when we get to it, the council itself. But, and, you know, I think that there's really three visions here. So uh, just to be clear, the dream the night before, the vision at noon that day, with the in this sign you will conquer, or with this sign you will conquer, and then the, the, the dream the following night. And that's where we, as Lutherans, are kind of starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because <laughs> visions and that and that sort of thing. Also, people might be uncomfortable with God taking sides in a battle, which they really shouldn't be if they've read the Bible. I mean that that's not exactly kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a very common thing. So you know, either way, if you're going to fight, at least fight on the side of Christ, I suppose. <laughs> but what, what you are going to see is, and it depends on how you look at this. This is his conversion is going to lead to the legalization of Christianity. Now, some people are going to say, well, once it's legalized and it becomes the official religion or an official religion, then it becomes politicized and therefore corrupt. People bristle at this idea, especially today when we don't want the government anywhere near Christianity or anywhere near religion in general, at least in our culture, for right or wrong. Well, we do have to remember, though, with that... That whole reaction that we have towards this idea of of church and government is really only a product of the Reformation and all of the unfortunate conflicts that come about as a result of the Reformation. Prior to that, and part of what prompted the Reformation to often act the way they did, was this idea that there should be a fundamental unity in society, that society and religion go together. We tend to think of of society as being fundamentally pluralistic because we've sacrificed religious unity in the hopes of maintaining a political unity. Yeah, it's worked out real well. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) But in Constantine's day, and all the way down to the Reformation, in fact, for quite a long time afterwards, 
the idea is is that there's you have to have a basic fundamental unity in religion in order to have stability in the state. It worked really well when it worked. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There are there are actually glowing examples of it throughout church history, uh, whether we want to admit it or not. Sure. Sure. So, any more about the uh, Milvian Bridge battle? Obviously, Constantine wins. I should mention that took place on 28th of October, uh, 312. And then in the months afterwards, you have a very notable edict proclaimed in February of 313, one which is highly important in the history of Christianity, the Edict of Milan, which granted to Christianity a basic tolerance. It wasn't really a, I wouldn't call it an establishing. It was basically saying that being a Christian was no longer a capital crime as it had been in centuries previous. And so now Christians could be Christians and there would be no fear of being put to death as a result of it. Right. So, so yeah. So now we're at kind of the end of our little historical section. We have Constantine who has recently reunited the empire and uh, continues to do so down through the three twenties. And he continuously promotes Christianity while he's going about doing that. Do you want to, Talk about anything in the historical, uh, political end of things before we dig into the religious end. Is there anything else you feel that's significant to this? Without making it go for 12 hours? Right, yeah. <laughs> no, I think I think we can go on to the religious. All right, so, so what's going on in the church at this time? All right, so there's a, a problem that the early church had. A very serious problem that may not seem like a problem to us because we live in the wake of, of church of this end of church history and not in the beginning end. And that problem is, is how do you define the relationship of Jesus Christ to the Father? And I defines the wrong word. I don't mean like we came up with it. What I mean is, is how does the Bible actually present this relationship? course, we would say, you know, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in in one God, but we haven't gotten that far in history yet. And so they're struggling with what kind of terminology can we use? How do we determine or how do we think through this this issue and find out what it is that the Bible actually says? What do you want to add to that, Willie? Uh, No, I mean, that's certainly certainly fine. The Trinity is the heart and soul of any good theology, and we begin with the identity of God. We have a, this tremendous benefit of living post Nicaea, and really post of you know beyond all the seven ecumenical councils, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and thus we stand upon the shoulders of these men who struggled and fought for orthodox theology, and so we have the benefit of thousands of pages uh, written about this, thousands of. Of, of literally probably thousands of books devoted to the subject of varying sizes. And mm-hmm. so we, are in, we owe a great debt because we do have great clarity of theology because of the sacrifice these men were willing to make. Mm-hmm. And we're living in an age where people don't take theology seriously, or they think it's something of an intramural debate between Christians, not something to really be bothered with. Mm-hmm. But these men understood the importance of right thinking and of orienting our minds towards what God has revealed and what God teaches and what the church of God is about. To lose the identity of God, to not 
confess faith in the Trinity in that formulation is to deny the God of scriptures, is to deny the only true God as he has revealed himself, and it is to lose everything. The bishops understood that, and the early church understood that. And even the heretics understood that, insofar as they were contending earnestly for a false position, but nevertheless, they felt it very important that people come to this to their understanding. So at least in their great error, they still had this zeal and understood the importance of, of belief in the power that mm-hmm. it has. Heretics though they were. Which should explain some of the energy which some of these councils often have. They seem almost raucous to us, like almost out of control sometimes. Not Nicaea per se. Nicaea is a pretty pretty tame affair. But because they are contending for the truth and because they're so involved with contending for the truth, yeah, sometimes it does get rather colorful. So as we, we go forward, I think we'll, we'll be entertained even while we're edified. <laughs> right, right. Now, we're going to get more into these heresies and these issues a little bit later. We're still going to look at the characters right now. And then we're going to bring some of this into a more contemporary setting too, depending on if we have time. So who is the major heretic, the major, the major villain of First Council of Nicaea? The black hat in our, in our drama here <laughs> is a priest, a pastor by the name of Arius, who is what we typically, uh, obviously the founder of what we now call Arianism. He was born roughly 256 in what is now modern Libya and became a priest in Alexandria, Egypt. So right on the Mediterranean coast, a very important city in, in Egypt, very influential in the early church too. And he is struggling with this problem, you know, trying to figure out how the, the Bible resolves this dilemma of how Jesus Christ and the Father are both God, and yet they are distinct from each other. And Arius decides, well, the only way I can solve this, and, I, and I'm putting solve in quotation marks, is if I deny the preexistence of the Son the preexistence of Jesus Christ. Basically, I mean, how do you how do you put Arianism in a nutshell? In a nutshell, Arians believe that Jesus is a created being. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, that we confess that Jesus Christ is fully God, God of God, begotten of God before all worlds. He 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 is God, so he he is not made. Begotten not made, we say. Uh mm-hmm. we confess. So he is without beginning and without end. Mm-hmm. Now, the incarnation has beginning, but that's different. For Arius, essentially, Jesus is similar to an angel. He's way more important than any other creature. But he's still a creature. But he's still a creature. I'm just, to be fair to Arius, I know that's a terrible right, thing to right. say. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, he's not saying he's equal to the angels or that he's equal just to a him, human being or, or something. Just a human being. He's, he's like the firstborn, the exalted of all creation. But still a creature. But still a and creature. Dis- yeah. And distinct from the Father by virtue of his creatureness, so that he is not God in the same way that the Father is God. Right. He is God in a, in a different sense. And the, the great catchphrase, Arianism was very good with catchphrases, and they even came up with hymns later on in church history to, to spread their heresy. Yeah. 
Now, the, 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 there is an admonition here, and I should probably bring that up later on in the ep- in the episode, but sloganeering is to be avoided, and propaganda hymns are probably also to be avoided, too. <laughs> but Or really, it's a lesson in avoid platitudes and sloganeering, and also to understand the power that music has for good or ill within the church, is what I mean. Absolutely. Yep. So but those two things, you know, important to remember, and we'll come back to that. But... The, the great slogan of Arianism was there was a time when he was not. Okay. Yeah. Basically by denying that Jesus didn't, the son did not exist from all eternity. Now we don't have a problem anymore. And so Arius with his philosophizing, with his basically smoothing out this difficulty, he believes that he's come to the best possible Solution again. I'm putting solution in right. quotation marks, and, we'll, and we're going to come back to Arius's doctrine and how the council deals with it shortly. So mm-hmm. they've got this issue. There are other issues. There's going to be you know 20 other edicts issued at the council. The most significant mm-hmm. is the Arian issue, mm-hmm. and and so we're going to come back to that. So they decided council is convened. The church had had smaller councils, local councils, in an effort to deal with these things. Mm-hmm. But on a local level, it can't always be done effect- effectively. Right. And so now, and this is why we spend so much time with the political end of things. Now, Constantine comes in. He's coming off of his victories. He's coming off of seeing this you know, newly united empire. And he's pretty excited. He's pretty stoked. But then he hears about this controversy cropping up out of Egypt that the, the Christian church is being torn apart by this heresy, which is, which is coming up out of Egypt. And he's not happy. (laughs) He doesn't want his empire to now crumble apart again after he's spent so much effort bringing it back together. And again, remember the, there is no division between church and state as we, as we put it as Americans, he believes in a fundamental unity between society and between the religion of society. And so as a result, then he decides, well, first of all, actually, and this kind of shows maybe a little bit about Constantine. The first thing he does is he writes a letter to Arius and to his bishop, Alexander, and says, you guys are engaging in needless conflict. You should have kept this to yourselves. You made this a public problem. Why did you do this? I think that's enlightening for us because it teaches us a little bit about who what where Constantine's coming from. I again I don't think he's just doing it from a political end of things. He's just not fully getting the full weight of what's going on here, although that will change as time goes on. Right. And it's it's interesting here, you know, most of the bishops are going to come with with a trinitarian understanding it would seem. But some historians will say that the majority of the Christian world at this time or at least a very, very large minority are Aryan, or at least have Aryan sympathies. Sure. So this is a controversy that's really brewing, but Constantine uh, really is just going after peace mm-hmm. uh, for at whatever cost. And that's that's something that you see even today, where people are like, "Hey, just stop bickering and just get along." <laughs> and the bishops are going to say, "No, no, we can't." And like I said, I do think that Constantine will eventually come around and he will see the importance of it, but he is very much interested in restoring peace to his empire. And so that's why he then convenes the Council of Nicaea. 
and he tells all the bishops from all around the Roman world, you need to come to Nicaea, which is in modern Western Turkey, and to be there basically in the middle of the year of 325. And then we'll we'll talk more about the council itself here, um, but do you want to add anything to that before? Uh, nope, that's all. We're going to take the next break, and we'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. We are back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills with Zelwyn Heidi talking about Nicaea One, the First Council of Nicaea. So the date is 20th of May to the 19th of June, 325. That's significant because it's short. Yeah. <laughs> Council of Trent goes on for decades. I mean, yet these guys were able to hammer, hammer out some of the most significant Christian teaching ever in just under a month. So it's pretty pretty impressive and efficient. Well, if only because I think Constantine kept things moving along. Yeah, you get yeah, you get the feeling there like there wasn't a, fl- a lot of fluff there, you know? You didn't have to listen to a lot of presentations and no PowerPoints or video segments about various groups, organizations and others. <laughs> you know, yeah, no no omnibus resolutions. They they just kept things right, moving. It was all business. <laughs> there is but a anyway, somewhere in there. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so Constantine presides over the council. He doesn't actually vote during any of the the debates. He just kind of keeps things moving. And he's so interested in keeping things moving, he refuses to let the council get sidetracked by any other by anything else, especially politics. In fact, the the church historians all say that the bishops who came to Nicaea and there were canonically, I suppose there were 300 what 318 Mm-hmm. although that's debatable. Anyway, so these these guys all brought their various disputes that they had with one another, and they presented them to the emperor. And the emperor basically said, no, this is not happening. And he publicly burned all of their letters, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is is a beautiful thing. You know, I can right. I can praise him for that. So so anyway, so they they sit down and they start to talk through all of the issues present at the Council of Nicaea. There was more than just Arianism, but we're, we're focusing right now on Arianism and how they came to eventually produce the first part of what we now call the Nicene yeah. Creed. Before we bump into that, though, there are some, uh, there are some notable bishops present. True. And w- perhaps one notable bishop who wasn't present. Well, the the most notable one that our listeners might know who was actually present was St. Athanasius. And Athanasius, basically, all of his troubles, and he's going to have a lot of troubles in life, begin in and around this particular council. And he's going to go on to have some pretty big struggles afterwards with Arianism as he continues throughout his life. But the other one that 
people always say is at the Council of Nicaea, but is very unlikely that he was, is St. Nicholas. Santa Claus, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and of course, the what's the, the great legend that goes along with St. Nicholas, Willie? Yeah, that he's so enraged by Arius' blasphemy that he he either slaps or punches him, depending upon the upon uh, the account. Either way, he throttles the dude. Yeah, he throttles the dude and is subsequently defrocked, I think, if I remember how the legend went. Right. Unfortunately, it's almost certainly legend. The earliest written accounts of of it are all late medieval, like very late medieval, like almost to the Reformation kind of late. And I mean, you do get depictions of it in iconography from the, the Byzantine churches, but it probably just didn't happen. I'm I'm sorry. It makes a good story, but yeah. So all, all of those, you know, St. Nicholas Day Christmas memes. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys. It's 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 a good story. It's a good joke, but it just ain't real. Right. And maybe it's time to retire it. There are danker memes for the Christian to use today. <laughs> so you know, it's time to move on. It, it dead. It dead. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, and so they they start to debate the the issues at at the council. So where do you want to go with this, Willie? Well, let's go right into Arianism, and then let's use this a little bit. Let's use this to, this discussion to frame kind of some contemporary issues as they come up. Okay, because Arianism is really going to be the only major one that we probably encounter. Mm-hmm. So let's let's get right into it. What's the what's the problem with Arianism? Well, one. As we already said, he's teaching that Jesus Christ is a created being. So what we confess, and a word that's very important, is going to be homoousius. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and basically, we're saying that Jesus is of the same substance, the Son is of the same substance as the Father. Mm-hmm. In contrast to homoousius, which is going to say similar, mm-hmm. right? like in substance, but not necessarily the same essence. Mm-hmm. And then there's going to be the heterousianism, which is going to say that the Father and the Son uh, share different substances, uh, different right. beings. And then there's some other weird ones too, but those are the big ones. But basically, without you know, you know, giving you words that that you may not remember, we are saying that the Father and the Son are of the same substance. Mm-hmm. Not like we're saying same, which is mm-hmm. different. Are they like? Yeah, but to say that they're merely alike is different than saying that they're the same. Right, and and just just for reference for our listeners too, in the Nicene Creed today, in the the form that we have it, this would be being of one substance with the, with Father. the Father, by whom all things were made. And yeah, now the term's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only because the first thing that that caused all the bishops so much trouble was that it's not biblical. Sure. In fact, that causes people today some trouble, too. Yeah. Where do you find that in the Bible? Well, you don't. (laughs) Right. And then it gets even, you know, when you consider of the 318 bishops, only like five are from the Western Church. Right. And so overwhelmingly Greek. And so that's going to there's going to be translation problems a little later on and even in other parts of the creed you know there's going to be some debate mm-hmm. some significant mm-hmm. debates we would say in latin consubstantialis right right you know language matters and so we can't deny that i mean it's not bad that the, that the council is overwhelmingly eastern 
It's just no. that's the way it is. You've got five Western guys against the other 313. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they don't like the term because it's not biblical. It, it's difficult. It's hard to define these things precisely simply because the concepts become difficult. And really, with homoousius and homoousius, you're getting the difference of one letter. Right. And a small letter at that. And a small letter. And it's even hard for me to say because I'm Southern. And it's like cramming three vowels together. It's not easy. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, but but they're willing to to have this debate. Now, Arius does not like the word for theological reasons, though. Right. Again, because he, he denies that, that the Bible teaches in accordance with that word. Yeah, no, he, he basically says, I will agree up to Homoousius. I'll even call Jesus a God. And that's probably significant for our context, too. Yeah. But I refuse to say that he has the same substance. And so they latch on to this term, even though they don't really like it, even though it's kind of a tricky and convoluted and not totally clear, they latch on to it because, hey, you know, this is something we can get behind. And yeah. so we use the word not because it's perfect, because we just don't have a better. Yeah, right. There is nothing. There's nothing else that you can use. So then this leads us to the formulation of the of the original creed, which we talked about a bit already, being of one substance with the Father and everything. Do you have the the original creed in front of you? I don't. Um, don't you have it memorized? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, it is like I said. It is different from what we now call the Nicene Creed, especially in the final portion of that creed, where it gets very explicitly anti-Aryan. Yeah, you have anathemas in the original one. Yeah, in the original it says, the people who say this are not Christian. I mean, it's kind of amazing. So, Yeah, but I mean, it specifically mentions, it anathematizes those who say there was once when he was not, and the view that he is mutable or subject to change. Yep, yep. And so eventually when they revamp the Nicene Creed, they will change it into the form that we now have. Well, yeah, and so, yeah, our form, I mean, I guess technically you would be the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. Creed, but that, yeah, no pastor's going to say that. That's just not going to fly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, okay, so the original is going to read something like, in English, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is to say or that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So they, they hammer that essence point and that substance point home a little more explicitly because you get essence mentioned there. Yep, yep. Yeah, fun stuff. We're not going to get into the Filioque today, folks, so if you were, because that's <laughs> yeah. not that's later. That's much later. <laughs> uh, that, that'll be a whole other podcast. but yeah. That'll be a fun one. Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so we come to Arius. We spend a lot of time on Arianism, and it's important that we adopt a spirit like unto the Orthodox bishops of the Council of Nicaea, men who are zealous for the truth and who are very careful in their definitions concerning the Godhead. The group today that probably teaches the most explicit Arianism is going to be like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they use language very similar to to Arians, and they'll even take the Greek text and try to twist it the way Arius did. They will very explicitly say that Jesus is a created being like unto Michael. Now, that's not talking about theophanies and things like that, 
but they're saying that Jesus is Michael, which is another way of saying that he is a created being. And they'll also say that Jesus is God, but with like an undercase G, a little G. He is a God. Yeah, just like Arius would say. Just like Arius would say. So when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, know that this is what they're teaching. They're teaching a doctrine condemned at the very first ecumenical council of the church. So it's a very old, old, old heresy. And the church has had to battle it again and again. It pops back up in the Reformation, mm-hmm. the time of the Reformation, under different names. It and it's kind of, you know, it's cousin, well, not its cousin, but Arianism and modalism are heresies that pop up very often within, within the church. But Jehovah's Witnesses continue to grow inexplicably. They're all over the world. And most of you at some point are probably going to either hear that knock at the door and answer it and be accosted by a Jehovah's Witness or politely talked to in most cases, or you're going to come home and find some literature left by them uh, on your door. Now, Zelwyn, what would be a good antidote or let's say anti-venom or inoculation (laughs) against Arianism or against Jehovah's Witness theology for the listener? Well, frankly, first of all, to be in your Bible, there's really no better medicine for any heresy. (laughs) Right, right. But also to recognize that these questions are not new. We're not dealing with, like you say, a new heresy with Jehovah Witnesses. We're dealing with a very old problem, one that men have bled over, men have sweated over, men have struggled with and ultimately have come to know what it is that the Bible actually teaches. Let's not discount the Holy Spirit's working in the history of the church. Now, we have to be careful with this when talking about councils and anything extra biblical. I understand that. But I do think you have a clear example of the Holy Spirit preserving his church from error here Mm -hmm. because it could have just as easily tipped the other way, quite easily tipped the other way. Well, that's, that's actually an important point there, too, because I think people tend to mischaracterize the council, this council and all councils as being essentially political affairs. Right. Like, you know, there was this, uh, this party over here and this party over here, and the only reason why this party over here won is because they did the most political man- maneuvering. Well, that's, that's just not true. Because if nothing else, and this is something that we'll look forward to, Arianism does not go away after this council. In fact, Arianism becomes very much the dominant heresy in virtually in large parts of the Roman world, even at yeah. like Constantinople. Arians control the government in many cases. Right, right. So this is not the suppression of some little minor thought. This is the truth contending for the truth, even in the face of incredible odds. Yeah, and, and the spirit preserves the truth. I don't think we can you know, we can we can make too little of this. Now, that's not saying that councils are infallible or that men are infallible somehow. It's simply saying that God made this promise that the church would be preserved, and he does it. And, and how is the church preserved? Well, through the handing down of the teaching of scriptures, and, and that, that teaching isn't lost. It is obscured at times, and it is suppressed at times by men who would even claim to lead the church. But nevertheless, the truth does live, and the flame burns on. I mean, we as Reformation-era Christians ought to understand that better than anyone. And that's, sure. and that's not a denial of sola scriptura. It's an affirmation of what the Scripture says about the church. 
And, and so to say that the Holy Spirit is at play here, or to say that God's providence is at play here, I don't think it in any way negates or takes anything away from the scriptures. Instead, it affirms them. You know, again, don't take more, don't, don't read, you know, too much into my words here. But this is simply saying that God has promised to preserve his truth and to preserve the church. And he does that over and against her enemies in different ways. You know, here's the thing, like, like Zellin just said, Arians controlled major portions of the church for some time after it, but we didn't lose the confession of this council, which is the confession of the scriptures, because it is what's taught in scripture. Despite great odds, it still remains and we confess it to this day. So that's enough on Arianism because we want to end with going through a little bit of the other things that they talked about at the Nicene Creed. So there's council or excuse me, the Nicene council. So there's, there's some more canons yep, and some notable ones. So one, you know, deals with how we, we date Easter. So if you want to talk about some math, you know, that's fun, but why don't you get into some of the more interesting ones for us? Well, let me, let me just point out the Easter one really quick. If only because it, the most directly affects us today in one minute, basically the controversy was, is how do we determine when we observe Easter? Uh, some of the people were saying, we do it according to the old Jewish reckoning. Basically, whenever Passover occurs, whatever day of the week it was, that's the day we have Easter. So Easter could be on a Thursday, for example. Yeah. But the council said, no, that's not really a good practice. We need to go with what, it, what was the more popular option that those days and all the way down to today. It's how we determine Easter today, which is the Sunday following Passover, basically. So, I mean, because the, the, the way we calculate it today being the, the first Sunday after the first full moon following the spring equinox is how you determine Easter. And that was more or less decided at Nicaea. So it, it still affects us today in other ways, too. Some of the other ones, there were 20 canons that were set forth at Nicaea, which kind of makes it even more remarkable that a creed and 20 new edicts yeah. were all that came out. <laughs> well, I mean, right at the off the bat, we've got the canon concerning eunuchs. Right. Which basically says no self-castrated person may remain a bishop or an elder. So if you were through sickness and the physicians you know, performed a surgical operation that rendered you a eunuch, or if, you, or if barbarians castrate you, you're all right. You can remain among the clergy. But if you're of sound mind and you castrate yourself, then you cannot be, you can no longer be a priest. Right. We're like, wow, we're pretty far afield. Now, now, up until a few years ago, I would have said, yeah, that's something we don't really need to deal with. But we're kind with the with the transgender <laughs> movement. We're coming right back around here. We're coming right back around to this. Now, granted, there, there are pagan things going on here. Well, not really. You know, sometimes, you know, who knows why they castrate themselves? It could be a misapplication of Jesus' teaching concerning, you know, casting things off. Which would be origin. <laughs> right, of right. So so for whatever reason, doesn't matter. They don't stipulate unless it's a surgical procedure, like a medical necessity, or a barbarian just forces it upon you. Um, that Those are your only yeah. two outs. So no eunuchs, no eunuch clergy. The concern being, of course, that there would be no grounds for offense, yeah, which is something that we can still very much get behind today, even if we find the law a little weird. Sure. But yeah, but but again, I think we're coming back to where this, this canon might speak a little more to us. 
and again, we should remember, and we should be very conscious of this, this idea behind not causing offense and that the presbyter should not be a stumbling block. It should mm-hmm. be, it's part of being above reproach. Those old pietists at Nicaea. <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> Let's see. No kneeling on Sundays from Easter to Pentecost. Yeah, that's an yeah, interesting You've got one. the validity of baptism by her- heretics. You have the Cathari. You know, which aren't the Cathari of the Middle Ages. They're the Novationists in this context. And that deals with, they basically believe that if you lapse during persecution, there is no forgiveness for you. Ever. Ever. And the church rejects that. Yep. Yep. So so maybe, maybe and we can talk about a couple more of the, the particular ones, but maybe just as a way of, of talking about why these canons are so important, even for us today, is to say that Nicaea had a very practical kind of outlook. Yeah, and what what you see in a lot of these is they deal with laity and clergy both. And and typically when it comes to laity and lapsing or even I mean obviously even clergy and lapsing is there is forgiveness. But you do have with the clergy a much more stricter set of guidelines. Mm-hmm. As does the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have these things about what do you do if a clergyman is examined by a bishop and he's found guilty of blasphemy or bigamy or or heresy he's not to be admitted uh, to the clergy right. you know if if he's denied christ he can be forgiven if he repents but he cannot be readmitted to the clergy well and then also avoiding offense too you have the canon that basically said that bishops and pastors should not seek out other churches basically what we in our terms what we would call seeking a call yeah, to go somewhere else by your own volition because they said no. That's that's just it's ambition. Yeah, <laughs> it's a real scandal, and so they they passed this particular canon against that as well. So yeah, so a real practical outlook. Yeah, and that doesn't. And of course, now point of or yeah, that doesn't mean that clergymen in those days weren't moved to different parishes or that they couldn't move. It's simply prohibition against people, men who are constantly seeking that better position, ambition, as we say. I don't want to be in this particular church because this is a backwater. I want to be where the action's at. Yeah. So I'm going to go finagle my way into this church. Yeah. So it's it's very, very practical and really very straightforward once you understand, you know, some of the specific, you know, historical words here like Cathari and things like that. Once you, once you define those, I mean, you're like, wow, this is a, this is very interesting and, and really refreshingly clear and pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And pragmatic in a in a positive way. Mm-hmm. So that's going to do it for this first discussion of Nicene theology. Zelwyn, anything you want to add? No, I think I mean we we delved pretty heavily into the historical end, and I and I hope for good reason, so that we could see the background and we can talk more about the theology in particular later. But hopefully, as we move forward in church history, we can kind of build on each other build and build up so that we can talk about future ones also. Because like I said, Arianism doesn't go away, but the truth has been confessed at Nicaea, and we can thank God for that. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. We have a new group up on Facebook, Word Fitly Posting. That's Word Fitly Posting on Facebook. If you want to come and uh, discuss what Word Fitly Spoken is about, have questions or disputations concerning podcasts or articles, check us out at Word Fitly Posting. Barring that, you can always see more at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. 
I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. This has been a word fitly spoken. God love you, and God bless.